All right, people, I'm going to make this quick, but for the next six weeks or so, starting February 1st, I'm putting all my show outlines up for auction. I've mentioned before that I have a very strict routine for preparing for and recording THC episodes, and part of that process, 95% of the time going back many years, has been waking up early on the days I record and compiling my notes into a roughly four to six page outline that I print out and conduct the interviews from as a template. I write in the margins, I cross stuff out as we go along, I jot things down I don't want to forget, and I usually have a good deal of material in these outlines that never even makes it to air. When a show is done, I put a little staple up in the corner and throw them in a filing cabinet. Well, it's no secret I'm trying to move, and what better time to try to collect a little extra cash and offload a box of stuff I've been storing that I don't need. So I'm signing, listing, and auctioning off all the outlines I have to any listeners who might be interested in that kind of thing. Each one is totally unique with its own markings, coffee stains, beer spills, printing imperfections, typos, and maybe even doodles in some cases that were never really supposed to be seen by anyone else, but I guess that's no big deal. I know I've personally bought signed scripts before, and some of my most prized possessions are band set lists I nabbed at the end of concerts. So maybe this is something like that for podcasts? If you're into it, they will be listed at ebay.com. Yeah, I know. ebay.com slash USR slash chats. The link is at the top of the show notes as well, but it's ebay.com slash USR slash chats. And of course, I'll post the links across all the social media dystopias I have an unfortunate presence in. Again, the first batch of outlines will go up February 1st and be listed for 10 days. And I'm going to continue to put up new batches as time permits, when and where I can. And I hope to have the whole thing completed in about six to eight weeks or so. I guess I'm just out when I'm out, but if there's a specific one you might want, keep dipping in to see what's been added. There's a good chance I haven't gotten it listed yet, and a real chance I don't even have it for one reason or another. But I do have most, so just keep an eye out. Thanks in advance to anyone who picks up a little piece of THC history and contributes to the Carlwood Family Moving Fund. Alright, and that said, in more ways than one, let's get this show on the road. Enjoy. Puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? Carwood and Company Serenity now, higher side chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And it seems as if we're in a world of smoke and mirrors, a seven-layer cake of lies, and enduring a never-ending string of psyops. Where before we can even get to the truth of one thing, we're hammered over the head with three more. 
A suspicious string of train derailments and a toxic cloud hovering over some of America's most important farmland. Chinese spy balloon drama. Unknown objects shot down over Canada, Alaska, and Michigan at a minimum. Tic Tac crafts over Pennsylvania being covered on mainstream news. Senator John Kennedy telling the American people to lock their doors tonight after a backstage UFO briefing. Economic upheaval, financial shakiness, and geopolitical tensions being intentionally pushed to a breaking point. It's hard to know what's true or even stay focused on a single thread in this dense and snug conspiratorial cardigan. But right in the middle of all the capstone cabal's controlled chaos has landed an opportunity I've been waiting for since I was 16. And that is talking to the legendary Richard C. Hoagland. Richard has always been a coast-to-coast -coast mainstay and a major influence on me in the days of the much smaller world of pre-internet conspiratorial talk radio. He is a former space science museum curator, a former NASA consultant, and during the Apollo missions, he was the scientific advisor to Walter Cronkite and CBS News. Richard is also the founder and principal investigator of the Enterprise mission, where for over 20 years, he has been leading a scientific team in an independent analysis of possible intelligently designed artifacts on Mars, as well as sophisticated glass structures on the moon. He popularized the face on Mars, continues to host The Other Side of Midnight, and co-authored a bona fide conspiracy classic with Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. I'm certainly psyched for this one, so let's do the damn thing. NASA's esoteric undercurrent exposer, space conspiracy staple, and captain of the Enterprise mission, Richard C. Hoagland. Welcome to the higher side. Oh, well, thank you, Greg. That was a wonderful interview. I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. Hey, it's great to be with you. Absolutely. Yes, it's an honor, Richard. And the timing couldn't have been better. I've actually been out of town for an event, and it just so happened to be one of the craziest weeks ever. And who better to talk to when across all the major mainstream news networks we're hearing about a strange string of objects being shot down? It's certainly no small thing for military jets to be shooting things down in American airspace. It's also not normal for them to shoot things down that they don't have a lot of intel on. And I'm not sure if this is just a PSYOP news story to distract us from other things, or if these are truly controlled crafts being shot down over the last few days. But the pendulum of the public's attention has certainly been swinging into your territory lately. So I got to kick this off by asking, what the hell is going on out there, Richard? Well, I've been looking at this for a very long time, as you know. And many decades ago, I kind of eschewed the whole idea of UFOs because I found way back in my museum days in the 1960s that it was a morass of disinformation misinformation, distraction, outright lies, cover-ups. It was impossible to kind of get to any semblance of truth, which is why, you know, many years later, I kind of inadvertently backed into the whole idea of extraterrestrial archaeology, which, of course, is the face on Mars, what's at Sidonia, what's on the moon, what's in the rest of the solar system, because ruins and artifacts stand still. And someday, when we're out there with enough manpower and woman power to actually land and find the libraries, we're going to uncover an extraordinary ancient tapestry of who we are and were in the solar system. And that data cannot really be spun by the PSYOPs folks and the deep state and all the people who've been trying so you know, assiduously to keep us in the dark 
you know, kind of like mushrooms, and you know what they <laughs> feed them for decade after decade after decade. So in that context, given that we have this extraordinary, amazing breakthrough in ruins on the moon, which I want to spend the bulk of our time, if we can, talking about, this sudden, you know, preoccupation with Chinese balloons and shooting things down, you know, it, it kind of makes zero sense from any military or political perspective, because it's almost like, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. And now, you know, we shot down, we, I mean, NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command, which is our joint air defense with Canada. We've shot these things down and nobody can find them. Yeah. Now, you can't tell me with, you know, F-22s with GPS accurate to, as a colleague of mine said the last the other night, you know, to the width of a playing card, that we didn't GPS track where the pieces fell and we couldn't send a team in with helicopters, with, you know, proper gear for Arctic weather and find the pieces in a week, <laughs> a whole week. Come on. Right, right. And I just saw a headline where they said that, oh, well, it's not extraterrestrial. It's probably just research or something attached to a corporation. It's like, OK, so you're just shooting down Boeing stuff or Lockheed well, Martin see, this, stuff. I was going to say, aren't there legalities involved? Why hasn't any corporation or private research group, you know, made news to the high heavens like you shot down our private enterprise equipment without even compensation? Yeah. And if it was a private research group or a corporation or whatever, you know, you're not going to do this without telemetry. And when on your board suddenly the lights go dark, you're going to know, oops, that was the one they took out. So your next phone call is to your attorney. And the phone calls after that are to the White House. You know, what the hell are you doing? Because I don't know. I mean, Greg, how do we launch anything in this country without going through the FAA? <laughs> Wouldn't this be incredibly dangerous and illegal? Having all this stuff floating around at altitudes of jetliners and civil aviation and all that, that was the cover story for shooting these three things down. They were between 40,000 and 20,000 feet. That was the last octagonal object over Lake Huron. Well, if this has been going on and we haven't noticed it, I mean, remember a few years ago, like a year or two ago, there was all this falderall around the LA airport, sightings from incoming airliners of a guy flying with a backpack around LAX. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Whatever happened to that? <laughs> Did they shoot him down? No. And it was an incredible danger to approaching airplanes landing at LAX or taking off. No, nothing about this story or stories seems to hang together. And so I'm devoting this coming Saturday night, which is the 18th, to three hours of the other side of midnight trying to delve into with some very interesting people who've been involved in the whole UFO, UAP disclosure project for decades. Mm. I'm going to try to get to the bottom of some of the stuff from inside that we're not being told. I think that Senator Kennedy, no relation, of course, from Louisiana, is kind of between the lines trying to tell us the truth in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. 
Because look, if we're dealing with real aliens, locking your door doesn't mean a damn thing. Right. Haven't you ever seen Star Trek? Don't you know about beaming down and beaming up? Come on. Right. But <laughs> if he's trying without breaking the letter of the law to give people a heads up that what they're telling us on the inside is not what they're telling you on the outside. I use the term an Emily Dickinson approach. Mm -hmm. Remember Emily Dickinson, the 19th century poet? And one of her great lines was, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. We're getting a lot of slant stuff these days. <laughs> yes, yes, very slanted. Like you say, they are treating us like mushrooms. They keep us in the dark and feed us a lot of BS. And there just seems to be a different set of rules for someone out there than they have for us. And just before we started, like, it is a great opportunity with all this going on to be able to talk to you now, but it's also bittersweet because we're in the middle of the story. And it's so new that we're going to get a lot more information, I would assume, between the time of recording this and it going out <laughs> to the world. So who knows exactly what's, what's relevant. But Biden just spoke before we started recording. And you were going to say something about what Biden had to say, which I didn't get to check out because I was preparing. But also you mentioned you think we might be in the end game. Elaborate on a little of that if you could. Well, the end game I define as the cover-up, which goes back at least 70 years plus to Roswell. But it goes back a whole lot further, I believe, in terms of human interaction with extraterrestrials. And by that, I do not mean aliens. You know, let me define some terms here. To me, aliens are folks out there who are not genetically related. All right? You couldn't marry them and have kids, that kind of thing. ETs can cover both aliens and family. What do I mean by family? Well, if the human species is a lot older than we've been told it is, and human civilization in various forms is an incredibly lot older than we've been given by academia, I'm talking, you know, the canonical model for civilization is cities in Sumer 6,000 years ago. Well, there is credible evidence all over this planet, and now based on our work looking at other planets, that humans have been a high technology species in this solar system for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, if not perchance millions of years. And we won't know those numbers until we get what's called ground truth. But we're seeing in the NASA data and in the Chinese data, and the Japanese data, and the Russian data, all these missions that have fanned out from Earth all over the solar system, we're looking at ruins on almost every object where we've got significant high-resolution imagery. And it's fascinating because the images are there, the data is there, but as long as no agency officially announces what's on the photographs, it becomes just internet rumor, you know, a million YouTube videos, people making outrageous claims, and it's just noise, and not many people in the mainstream are really paying attention. So I've been trying to do it by the book. I put together a very interesting multidisciplinary team. They're all over the world. We connect with Skype. We connect with email. We send data back and forth, images, analyses, content, all, all that. And now I've got, because Art made this horrible suggestion, 
you know, years ago, why don't you have your own show? And I was dumb enough to take him up on the offer. <laughs> so now, you know what, almost 10 years later, I've got this show, The Other Side of Midnight, which airs live on weekends, Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific. And then we replay shows. We have a club where you can join an archive for a nominal, you know, 10 bucks a month. And you basically get access to now it's over a thousand hours of interviews with all kinds of people that I've done on all kinds of subjects. But it's been in the last year or two, it's been narrowing down more and more on this continuing enterprise research, which is not are we alone? Because, of course, we're not. But why have they been lying to us about who's out there and who's been interacting with us in terms of this extended human ET family, mm. which brings us to what's going on right now. Back in the 1940s, I don't know whether you've done a lot of research into UFOs. I presume you have. Here and there, yeah. Yeah, remember the Army Air Corps started shooting things down and they set up recovery teams to go and pick up the pieces and the crash disks and then Roswell and, you know, the incredibly interesting rumors about E.T. humanoids and all that, and medical experiments, medical analyses, autopsies, all that. Right. Well, the one truth that seemed to come out of that era is do not, under no circumstances, shoot first and ask questions later. Why? Well, it's kind of like that Jim Croce song. You know, don't tug on Superman's cape. <laughs> don't spit into the wind. Don't pull on the mask of the old Lone Ranger, etc. Mm -hmm. So in the last week, or two weeks now, we've shot down three, as the White House termed them, unidentified flying objects. Who in their right mind in the military, with what happened in 2014, with the Tic Tacs and all of the video, and the pilot reports of extraordinary technology which can defy gravity, and migrate, literally beam from the stratosphere to the ocean surface in microseconds. Who in their right mind would authorize shooting down three objects with Sidewinder missiles if you weren't absolutely convinced that it was totally benign and you were not going to be attacked, mm -hmm. counterattacked? In other words, you wouldn't inadvertently start an interplanetary war. <laughs> yeah, you'd think the stakes would be pretty high. So if we're doing that, then you got to ask the next level question. Well, why are we doing that? And why are we doing it so visibly? And why did the head of NORAD say the other day on the record? Remember, this is not a, you know, somebody deep in the rank. This is the general in charge of North American air defense, right? He was asked the question. Could these be extraterrestrials or alien? And he said, I'm paraphrasing, at this point, we cannot rule out anything, including an E.T. answer. <laughs> the guy! It's so crazy. They've been so tight-lipped for so long. Decades of silence. Now, all of a sudden, they're totally transparent, and the news is covering it across the country. It just doesn't make any sense. What if this is in the vernacular of how people approach this subject, which is basically popular culture, what if this is a controlled 
time release aspirin disclosure hmm. to set up the premise that, you know, there's folks out there, but they're a little dodgy and we can't trust them and we need to have a military readiness. And look at this. We shot three of them down and nothing happened. So our weapons are better than their weapons, which, of course, is crap. Yeah. But the public in large, if the right authority figures say it, will believe it. I mean, look what happened after the NORAD general said we can't rule out ETs. Suddenly you have the White House coming out saying, oh, they're definitely not extraterrestrial. Well, how the hell do they know? <laughs> they haven't recovered one little piece of anything. How do they know? Just because the guys didn't shoot back and incinerate RF-22s and F-16s? This really reminds me of what happened in the 1950s, in like 1952. Remember that incident? Where for like a couple of weeks over the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the capital itself, we've got the film, UFOs appeared in restricted airspace. Yes. And the jets did not shoot them. They chased them. They discovered they had incredible technological capabilities. And then Truman came out and did the same thing this White House has done, saying nothing to see here. Move along, move along. It's just, uh, what do they call it? Temperature inversions doing weird things to the radar. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also really odd to me that Roswell had this big flying saucer slash weather balloon confusion. And now it's a very similar story. Are they alien crafts? Yeah, Are they balloons? It doesn't even seem easy to confuse those two things. Well, but see, this is playing out against the backdrop of what began in 2017, which was the official story in The New York Times ushering in this modern era of creeping disclosure, where The New York Times published the stories of the pilots, the stories of the radar operators, other sailors on the battle group around the USS Nimitz, and then a similar battle group, you know, around Teddy Roosevelt in the Atlantic of maneuvers being observed by so-called Tic Tacs, objects about the size of a small car that kind of remind anybody of anything recently <laughs> that were zipping around at speeds and maneuvering that made our F-18s and F-16s look like absolute primitive paintballs and scotch tape and bailing wire. And they obviously were high tech. After that, through a progression of maneuvers in Washington, the Pentagon has set up now this official all anomaly office. NASA has set up a separate study group to look into unidentified aerial phenomenon staffed by a whole bunch of, you know, we used to call them eggheads including one former astronaut who was the brother of the astronaut who was the senator from Arizona, Mark Kelly. And this week, just two days ago, the White House suddenly announces they have brought the UFO problem into the White House officially under the National Security Council, and they're setting up an interagency task force to basically define the rules, both domestically and internationally, globally, for what we do about 
unidentified objects flying in our skies when to shoot one down costs half a million bucks for each sidewinder. <laughs> yes. And then you can't find the pieces. Right, right. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the researchers who say that the whole framing of this is completely off, that it shouldn't be in a military context, it shouldn't be in a space alien context, or even anything physical, that maybe what we're really dealing with is some kind of angelic or spiritual type of presence, maybe from a higher dimensional plane that has really been with man since the beginning. And, and this whole framing in the modern era is just completely off. Well, that's a valid perspective because it's an open-ended science. But, you know, it's like the old maxim of the West. I'm here in New Mexico, you know, the heart of Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and the Lone Ranger. You know, you want to not shoot first, but keep your powder dry. You start from 3D. In other words, you ask yourself, would angels show up on radar? I don't think so. You know, it's the angelic or the otherworldly or hyperdimensional realm to this, which is what I prefer, I think is a lot more up close and personal. The society-wide appearance of things that show up on radar to me, would tend to indicate physical objects, 3D objects with very extraordinary physics flight characteristics, like the ability to counteract gravity. And I was very amused when Secretary Austin said last night in a very long interview, which is going to show up next week on MSNBC, he said, our radars were all tuned. And what he means is the computers, not the radars, because the computers are used to filter you know, just like you can filter in your computer for looking at certain items and rejecting everything else. Well, if NORAD had looked at everything, they would be inundated by noise. So you filter for the things that are expected. What I don't buy is that after the whole tic-tac thing, you know, with the U.S. Navy, with two battle groups, you know, on both oceans, west and east, why we were not looking for things that can hover against gravity without moving at all. That would seem to have been a logical national defense posture. So the idea that after the Chinese balloon, we're suddenly shooting down things that we never knew were there before, I don't buy it for an instant. And I go back to Senator Kennedy, no relations, comments, which is what you would do if you're trying to give people a heads up in the classified briefing you know, frame that this is not exactly what they're telling you. And the, you know, lock your doors was metaphorical. In other words, we're dealing even at the official level with what they think to be when they're telling each other the truth, unknowns and unknowns that at the moment are not shooting back. Why we would shoot three objects down and have zero knowledge of where they came from what their capabilities were, what they were doing. I mean, militarily, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. No sense at all. Right, right. Against the backdrop of the whole tic-tac phenomenon. And remember, the Pentagon has said officially, those are real videos, those are real incidents, and there's a whole office now set up with congressional oversight, which just published a report a few weeks ago saying that they've been a whole 
you know, several hundred new objects discovered in the last year. Well, how? Yeah. You know, is it people out there with magnifying glasses? I mean, the Pentagon says, well, we didn't notice these things were being picked up. They came to us through the intelligence community. Well, how did the intelligence community find out if they aren't using military sensors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who's not telling? In other words, this is a concoctation of lies and half-truths and misstatements designed to confuse, not to elucidate. And it means that the folks on the inside are probably as puzzled and nervous as the folks on the outside. And let me give you one po possible scenario that might make sense. We've been looking at extraterrestrial visitations to this planet or extra dimensional. I'll open the filter for that for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yes. That's on the record. You just have to look at the right data. Okay. What if recently in the last year or so, or maybe in the last month or so, a new player showed up and we don't know what to do but there are indications that the player might be hostile. So we're shooting first and asking questions later in a stupid terrestrial limited technology preventive way, because that's the way certain military minds are functioning, not thinking big enough or long range enough to realize you do not violate the Jim Croce song. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a possible scenario. And it does seem like we're just in the first few chapters of a larger story and time will tell. But I definitely had to kick this off with getting your thoughts. But as you had mentioned to me, we are seeing a lot of things going on that fit into your wheelhouse. You mentioned new developments with structures on the moon. What's the latest in, in terms of those things? Well, let me ask this. Are you sitting down? <laughs> I am. Okay, we have absolute 100% confirmation of my decades-old model of extraordinary glass structures on the moon. Woo! And we have been doing programs at the other side of midnight for the last several months, sometimes, you know, Saturday and Sunday, and sometimes I'll kind of, you know, spin off and do something else on a Saturday, and then we'll come back to the theme on Sunday programs with the imagery and experts and detailed conversation, speculation, analysis, and all that. And let me tell you what's kicked off this incredible, stunning new era, the South Korean unmanned mission to the moon, which left Earth or the moon last summer. The South Koreans have sent a 1,500-pound unmanned robotic spacecraft on a very long, month-long energy and fuel-saving journey. So it launched successfully last August, but it didn't get to the moon, into orbit around the moon, until December. And that's because with computers now, you can pick a trajectory which is just slightly under escape velocity, meaning if the spacecraft kept going out and out and out and out, like a stone thrown into the sky, it would eventually stop and return to Earth and crash into the Earth's surface at very high speed, okay? But it saves an enormous amount of fuel because what you do is you aim it 
in the direction that before it can stop and then fall back to Earth, it encounters the moon, which, of course, is orbiting within the Earth's gravitational influence. And there's a technical term for these trajectories. They were found by computer geniuses at KPL many decades ago. They're very, very, very low energy transfer trajectories that mean that if you launch something from Earth to the moon to go into orbit, instead of taking like three days like Apollo did, it takes like four months. But you get there and there's the wonderful diagram showing the loops of the orbits through space and how the sun and the moon are affecting the trajectory. And what you do is you wind up almost at a standstill in space relative to the moon, which means then a short rocket burn with minimum fuel can be used to place you into a safe permanent orbit around the moon. Hmm. So during this transit, during this four-month-long transit from Earth to moon by the South Korean mission, which is called Denuri, D-A-N-U-R-I, you can look it up, Google, it's made up of two Korean words, meaning enjoy moon. <laughs> enjoy moon. The South Koreans have a wonderful sense of humor. Because why are they enjoying the moon? Because of what they're confirming that's on it, <laughs> which is ancient ET ruins as far as the eye can see. Now, what's really weird, you know, going back to my Emily Dickinson poem, Tell All the Truth, but Tell It Slant. The way I got onto this is that obviously the South Koreans are in partnership with NASA. They actually reserved a space on the unmanned spacecraft going to the moon for an experiment dedicated to the future upcoming human missions of the NASA Artemis program. Remember, a few months ago, we sent an unmanned Artemis mission in orbit around the moon for 26 days and everything worked and we got stunning imagery and it came back and splashed down and spacecraft was recovered and there's huge much of data you know now being analyzed the next flight will be a human flight with american astronauts four of them including a woman and they're going to go into a low orbit around the moon for several days and then return and then that'll take place sometime probably toward the end of 2024 in 2025 they're planning their first landing on the moon with NASA astronauts since Project Apollo in this new Project Artemis. Artemis was the sister of Apollo in terms of the Greek pantheon of ancient gods, okay? Right. All very elegant, all very mythological, all very symbolic, all very Emily Dickinson. <laughs> and to do that, they're actually sending, in partnership with other nations, these precursor unmanned missions to basically scout where on the moon they want to land and what resources they will need in the way of orbital technology to help them land. And so the South Korean mission, Denuri, is part of this unmanned flotilla of spacecraft which have been launched over the past year or so to basically gather reconnaissance information about the lunar south pole, which is there, somewhere there, where the Artemis mission in 2024, the 
manned or human mission will set American astronauts down on the surface in a, wait for it, Elon Musk lander. <laughs> because NASA gave Musk the sole source contract to develop the uh, 21st century equivalent of the lunar module of Apollo, which is going to be obviously a, a modification of his starship, which is now set in Texas for an unmanned launch of the first pull-up starship, the biggest, most powerful rocket ever launched from anywhere on Earth, the Big F rocket, as they call it, and it will launch sometime probably in March into Earth orbit. So we're waiting for that because you know what Musk's longer-range plan is, don't you, with that rocket separate from NASA? Going to Mars. No, going to the moon with nine tourists, ah. <laughs> nine civilians, nine right-brained, out-of-the-box thinking artists, musicians, photographers. There's an engineer, the so-called everyday astronaut, all handpicked by Musk and his uh, Japanese billionaire friend. And they will, of course, be going to the moon. They'll be spending three days, sometime around the end of 2024, in the same time frame as the second Artemis mission with NASA astronauts, the difference being that the NASA astronauts will have signed all kinds of legal paperwork, you know, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. The civilians, the artists going on Musk Starship will go into lunar orbit for three days at 120 miles, and they will have signed nothing, <laughs> which means they can look out the windows, there are big windows in the Starship, with all kinds of cameras, you know, smartphones, dedicated digital cameras, 4K, whatever, and they will beam back live to the entire planet what they see, and guess what? They will beam back through Twitter because a guy named Musk just bought Twitter for $44 million, so nobody will be able to censor what they're going to send back to Earth that confirms the ruins that are there. <laughs> well, I like where your head's at. You begin to see a big, big plot? Yeah, I could see it. I mean, there's a lot of claims going around out there, and I like what you're saying. I would be very excited if that were the reality, and I'm a big fan of your work. I grew up on it, but you know, when, well, when I, I look at everything since, though, and Greg, I think Greg, about Greg, NASA, Greg, they Greg, lost Greg, the telemetry Greg, data. Greg, Greg, yes. we don't have a lot of time. Let me continue. I'm, I'm not done. Okay, sure. I'm, this is only whetting your appetite. All right, well, let's eat. <laughs> the South Korean mission en route to go into lunar orbit, remember, launched last August, arrived at the moon, went into orbit successfully last December. En route to the moon, it took stunning photographs innumerable images of the ancient lunar dome covering the moon. And then the Chinese communist space program stole one of those images and is using it as a banner for the Chinese program to go to the moon and set up a lunar base, which we, of course, are discussing at great length this coming Sunday, which will be, what, a week? before your version of the show airs 
on your own radio space. Yeah, most likely. So we'll probably have to do some more on this. <laughs> yes. See, you don't have images with your radio show, right? Unfortunately not, but we can put them on the show notes if you have them, but paint us a picture. See, we have a section of the show called Radio with Pictures. So every week when I do the show and I have guests on, we devote pages of the web to their links, video, imagery, whatever. And then during the replays in the archive, people can refer to those images. So we have done for the last several months, detailed imagery since September of what the South Koreans were in this exquisite Emily Dickinson fashion, previewing for the world. Now, remember, we live on a planet where unless an authority figure sits in front of a TV camera and says, this is reality, all you get is an internet food fight. In other words, the South Koreans could have posted stunning close-ups of structures with doorways and windows and roofs and parking garages and all that, and nobody would comment unless they officially announced it. That's true. So they published in this incredibly elegant way. If you go to the actual Denuri website, which is part of the South Korean Space Agency, I bet you didn't know the South Koreans had an official space agency <laughs> with agreements with NASA for previous missions. They took a camera from NASA called a shadow cam designed to look into the shadows at the south pole of the moon, which are permanently shadowed because the orientation of the moon is such that it doesn't have real dramatic seasons like the Earth with its, you know, 23 and a half degree tilt. The moon orbits basically almost straight up and down relative to the sun. So with the North Pole and the South Pole, there are bottoms of craters that have never seen sunlight in millions and millions, if not billions of years. So NASA developed a camera, which is 200 times more sensitive than the camera they've flown to the moon at any previous time. And they basically booked space on the South Korean spacecraft for their 33 pound camera. Why should that number be significant? <laughs> it's Freemasons, huh? Yes, you got it. <laughs> this is all symbolic because this is about opening the treasure chest to our ancient heritage, which these secret occult societies have owned for thousands of years. Really? You think they're going to open up? They have to because of people like Elon Musk and a whole bunch of other nations that are planning to send civilian tourists to the moon. Well, what about people who say Elon Musk is just another billionaire? He's positioned to play the role of the man of the people, but he comes from an elite family. His father ran mines in a, in a really sketchy situation, a kind of ethically sketchy way. His mother has some weird occult stuff. She's always flashing the same old symbols. What do you think about this just being an act that he's not really going to do anything to, to truly help mankind? Well, A, if he doesn't, somebody else will. There are 7 billion people on this planet and a lot of rich nations and a lot of rich billionaires. Look at Bezos, all right? Bezos has planned separately to go to the moon in what's called the new Armstrong rocket and spacecraft. 
anyway, the point is it's competition now. We're in a totally different mode than government-controlled space programs. Right. And if you don't send people, there are now technologies available that are literally off the shelf where for the price of like a Mercedes-Benz, you can send a private unmanned mission with the right technology to photograph the hell out of these things and display it all over the world. Right. Which, of course, is what the South Koreans did. Let me tell you what they did that's so elegant that allows them to confirm my model. And I've looked and looked and looked. I'm the only guy that's claimed that in extraordinarily ancient times, millions and millions of years ago, somebody with incredible technology domed the entire moon in with layers of glass-like, shell-like domes. And then meteor erosion took place. On the side that we can see, the domes are almost completely eroded. How do we know this? Well, if they weren't, you couldn't have landed spacecraft repeatedly, both manned and unmanned. On the far side, the side that the Orion mission photographed, the Artemis mission, the images are stunningly complete now that the dome is much denser, much thicker, and has most extraordinary visual and optical properties. And we've got all that data on the Other Side of Midnight website going back several months to all the shows we've done on this with various experts and analysis. So what the South Koreans have done is they took a special camera that the Korean Space Agency developed called a polarizing camera. Do you know what polarizing filters are? Yes, I believe they're used to reduce glare. Well, they do if that's what you want them to do. They also can enhance glare if that's what you want them to do, because light comes in two forms. Ordinary light that you're looking at in the studio, and I'm looking at outside on this gorgeous New Mexico afternoon, comes in two forms. It's filtered in terms of color, right? Red wave wavelengths, green, blue, violet, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's also filtered in terms of what's called polarization. What does that mean? It means that light vibrates in a certain geometric plane. Circular polarized light vibrates in all 360 degrees simultaneously. That's why it's called circular polarization. But light, when it bounces off surfaces like water, like clouds, like certain materials, like optically transparent materials, like glass, mm -hmm. it eliminates most of the planes of vibration. So it vibrates essentially in one direction, like up and down or sideways or catty corner. If you look at a circle in front of you, and you do like from six to midnight or nine to three in terms of planes of polarization, you can create filters that will look at those specific filtered planes of polarization and enhance them and exclude all other background non-polarized light, which means you can basically look at the reflections from the glass which at certain angles are 100% polarized and you can exclude all other light, which means when you take a photograph, 
through a proper Polaroid filter that's aligned properly, you can enhance the polarized reflections from the domes and exclude all other extraneous background detail. And that's what the Koreans did. That's what they published. And we've got the pictures and they're stunning, huh. absolutely shatteringly stunning. <laughs> there is no way that you can explain this in any other fashion than like I just did. I love it. I love it. And that is really great to finally get that confirmation. I know you've been talking about that for over a decade. And as wild as things are out there and as interesting as the South Korean stuff is, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and I got to fit this into the first hour. We got to segue a little <laughs> bit over to talking about Dark Mission, the secret history of NASA. This book came out in 2007, and in it, you decode Egyptian symbolism and NASA patches and the ritualization of their missions like I'd never seen anyone do. You go deep into the Jack Parsons, occult origins of the space program stuff way before it was trendy. You lay out some great stuff about ruins and the face on Mars and, of course, the crystal structures on the moon. It was all foundational in a lot of ways that I still consider when thinking about NASA today. But what can you say about this strange Egyptian motif obsession, the ritualization of their missions and patch symbolism? And where is the state of the occult aspects in more recent activity, do they still seem to have this dark mission? Well, yeah. Remember, NASA made a contract with the South Korean Space Agency to put the shadow cam, which, of course, is really NASA's camera to photograph the domes. Why would NASA want to secretly, under a cover story, photograph in those dark craters at the South Pole the dome layers lying above the craters, right? Because mm -hmm. if they're going to land, they need to know where the holes are so they can safely send a mission down to land on the surface without killing everybody. Hmm. And obviously, at that stage of the game, they weren't going to admit it in public. So when they set up the contract with the South Koreans, which was many years ago, we were in a different phase of this unveiling disclosure process than we are now. So Mike Malin, who is the cover-up king of NASA photography, remember, he was the principal investigator on the Mars Surveyor mission to photograph Sidonia and then Mars Observer before that, and then also many missions subsequent. And of course, he hasn't told the truth about what's at Sidonia and the face from day one. So he's the principal investigator on this shadow cam, which is really a cover story, you know, more Dickinsonian, not telling the truth, but telling it slant, to basically photograph the domes for NASA in complementary style with the polarization camera from the South Koreans. Because the South Koreans, you know, they don't say well, we're putting this camera on our spacecraft to look for glass ruins on the moon. No, they're saying they're analyzing different surface properties. Okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they always do. Right. But after the show, I'm going to send you some of these photographs. Right. I'll include them. What you're going to do is you'll post them on your website, you'll point where people can get much more information to our website, the other side of midnight, and we'll do a kind of a handoff between each other because it's now steamboat time. <laughs> this is confirmation. Yes. There's there's such elegance and such elegant science in this. So let me tell you another piece of the story. People really don't pay attention to robots, right? Right. 
we've had robots roaming the solar system, sending back stunning images, confirming all my out there bizarre models, and nobody gives a damn. Why? Because there are no people involved. People relate to people, right? That's true. Which is why Musk sending nine tourists to the moon, probably around Christmas of 2024, which is just months away. I mean, you won't believe how fast that time is going to go. Can you imagine a more extraordinary Christmas present for the world? Now, you say that Musk just could be a stalking horse, a plant, you know, someone who's just dissembling, he's not going to do anything. Well, he's already stated on the record he's going to do it. He's already got contractual commitments. They've already picked the nine astronauts. And guess what, Greg? We are in touch with them behind the scenes. Hmm. We are briefing these nine civilians on how to see and photograph the structures on the moon. And you know what the secret sauce is? What's that? Polarizing filters. <laughs> and one of them is a professional photographer. I like it. So we're going to have that civilian crew prepped. And believe me, if they've been dumb enough to sign any NDAs, we will smoke that out before they leave. Mm. But when those people arrive in lunar orbit, remember, in months, not years, in months, they will be equipped with the right filters, the right cameras, the right technology to not only see, because all you have to do is to look out the window and rotate the polarizing filter to the right angle, and the ruins will just pop out because you'll be excluding all extraneous background noise and amplifying the signal of glass interacting with light. Do you know, in science, there is something called the Brewster angle, which is 53 degrees, which is the maximum plane of polarization for light interacting with glass. Hmm. And we've got photographs showing the imagery of, of the moon, not taken by the South Koreans, but taken by terrestrial amateur astronomers during a total eclipse of the sun. Because during total eclipses of the sun, what is that big black dark circle blotting out the sun? They say it's the moon. Of course it's the moon. <laughs> it's the side of the moon that always faces the earth, right? Mm -hmm. But it's in darkness because it's hidden from sunlight. It's in the moon's shadow, right? Right. But it is not totally dark. What's shining on the night side of the moon during a total solar eclipse. Would it be the sun's reflection off the Earth? Exactly. It's called Earthshine. Mm -hmm. Earthshine on the moon is 80 times brighter than moonlight, full moonlight on the Earth. Is that why they tell us not to look at it? Because they don't want us to see what's on there? No, 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 no. That's because of the solar surface. No, no. <laughs> no, no. It has nothing to do with the moon. Full sunlight is about 10 thousand times brighter than earth light on the moon and now we get into the whole thing you know why were there no stars in the apollo images and all that it's because of technology what they call the latitude of the photographing 
system simply could not handle faint starlight and brilliant sunlight because starlight is millions of times dimmer than bright landscapes on the moon lit by sunlight. But during total solar eclipses, let me give you a little kind of a retro. Way back in March of 1970, when I was science advisor to Walter Cronkite, and we borrowed a KC-135 jet aircraft from the US Air Force, a missile tracking aircraft, and we outfitted it with a special telescope and television system that I helped design. We flew that aircraft in March of 1970 at 40,000 feet over the east coast of the United States and chased the racing shadow of the moon in eclipse tracking up the east coast of the United States to Newfoundland, which, by the way, is the eclipse that Carly Simon wrote that great song about. I don't know that one. I can hear it in my head. I can't remember the name of it at the moment. <laughs> it was it was written to it was a kind of a secret ode to Warren Beatty, who she was, you know, in love with at the time. And he had jilted her. So she wrote this bizarre song in which the eclipse of March of 1970 is included. You're so vain. That was the title of the song. Ah. All right. And it talks about the eclipse. Anyway, there I am at 40,000 feet guiding a special telescope in a borrowed you know, U.S. Air Force KC-135 broadcasting for the first time in history a live color TV view through our telescope of the total eclipse of the sun that Carly Simon put in the song, okay? And what I tried to do with technology of 1970 is to photograph simultaneously the eclipse and the earth light on the dark, black disk of the moon that only appears as a black disk. People don't see the familiar features because in the contrast of the brilliant light of the corona and the very dim light of Earthshine, you can't really see it unless you have technological aid. We've got videotape of that effort, that experiment, and on that old videotape, I've gone back now and looked and you can see indications of the glass domes. It's bizarre, it's extraordinary, it's astounding, and it's history. Remember, YouTube saves everything in your life that ever was committed to film. So be careful what you do in retrospect way back when. Hmm. Anyway, so we've got an eclipse coming up in 2024. Right. You're aware of that, right? Yep, gonna be in Texas to see it. In 2017, there was one which Robin and I recorded with instrumentation uh, for the physics. In 2024, there's a second one, which kind of crosses in the middle of the country and goes up kind of like toward the East Coast, unlike the one in 2017, which went down kind of like the Southeast Coast. Very, very rare that you would get two total eclipses crossing the same continent within a few years of each other. Very rare. All those people in the path of totality, if we reach them with the right mass media, which we're planning now, will be able to, from their own backyards and the proper binoculars or smartphones and telescopes or whatever, they will be able 
with polarizing filters to do what's already been done, but the astronomers didn't know what they were doing in photographing the ancient glass dome around the moon because when the sunlight hits the earth, it partially enters the water and is partially reflected. That reflected wave is up to 30 to 40% polarized. Hmm. It then reaches the moon. You with me? I'm with you. It's reflected off the glass structures, the upper levels, at 100% at the Brewster angle. And that's why you see in this incredible natural solar system experiment, the moon and the earth are the only two bodies in the whole solar system where this works because earth is a water world, right? And water polarizes sunlight and acts like a partial polarizing filter. And that is reflected in earth shine from the glass ruins on the moon and bingo on thousands and thousands of images, ordinary citizens will be able to photograph from their own backyard this extraordinary ancient reality of a civilization, a super high-tech ultra civilization that was able to literally dome in, in glass, the entire ancient moon. Woo, wow. <laughs> we are on the threshold of stunning developments. That will be amazing. We're just one year away. And in December, remember the eclipse is in April of 2024, right? Mm -hmm. The total eclipse is April, I believe. 2024? Yes, yes. Okay. In December, being very generous with rocket development and Musk time frame and all that, you're going to have those nine tourists who are going to be orbiting for three days, just 120 miles up equipped with the proper filters, the proper cameras, and the proper instruction from us as to what to see, what to verify, and what to send home, uncensored, unblocked by Twitter. That's why Musk bought Twitter. It's an interesting premise. We shall see. Well, do you know how I know all this? How? Are you aware that Musk and Joe Rogan spent a half an hour talking about my research a few months ago? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. And that they had the book cover ready? Yes. Did they reach out? Of course not. Ah. It's more Emily Dickinson. Ah. They're prepping the audience. Nothing in this game is linear. Nothing. It's level upon level upon level because a lot of it's been controlled by the so-called secret societies and we'll hit one on the head, the Masons. Right, and I've heard you talk about the Shemsu Hor, which goes all the way back to Egypt. All the way back, the followers of Horus, yes. <laughs> yes, that's the curiosity with a lot of this stuff, with the obsession of Egyptian ritual, the symbolism, the occult numbers, and all this emphasis. You've called them magicians in Dark Mission, and... It's just, it's a curious thing that they have this preoccupation. And I just wonder. It's not curious. It's not. It's, it's about our heritage. It's about who owns what and who is in charge and who is just chattel. Who doesn't count? All right. We're looking at DNA lineage, genetic, you know, relationships to the family out there, which through history, because of weird things, they are viewed as gods 
right? Mm -hmm. Think Stargate SG-1. Sure. Uh, which was part of the preparation. Why do you think Stargate SG-1 was produced with the cooperation of the U.S. Air Force? Why do you think that it's been rerun on Comet and Sci-Fi endlessly over and over and over again? Because in part, that's our ancient history. And how do you, a la Brookings, acclimate a population that, you know, from their perspective is dumber than dirt, so they won't freak out? All right, remember, Senator Kennedy, lock your doors? Yeah. That's our first instinct with the unknown. Lock your doors. Give me a break. <laughs> so they've got to have this program over decades to leak quietly, subtly, incrementally, over and over again, more and more information, more and more storytelling, more and more cultural memes, like all these tentpole movies, like Stargate, like Star Trek, like Star Wars. And now we're at the end game where we're in our own modalities. We'll be able to go to the moon and take close-up imagery and blow our minds as to what culture was able to do that. And that's the entree to everything else that's going to open up in the solar system. And again, if it's not Musk, it's going to be some other billionaire or some other private group that sends a spacecraft for the cost of a Mercedes with the right filtering now that the South Koreans have shown us how to do it. And so these secrets are not secrets for many more months than maybe you can count on two hands. Mm. Maybe. I love it. And it's weird that the same Egyptian stuff comes up in SpaceX, too. The Falcon rocket is Horus. Apep is the you dragon. You think that's an accident? Not at all. Not at all. As soon as I saw Musk naming his key rocket Falcon, I said, well, of course he's in on it. Are you familiar with the Von Braun novel? No, I don't think so. I'm, oh. I'm aware of the fake alien invasion claims that were made no, no, by no, no, Carol no, no, Rosen. No, no, no. Well, I'm very suspicious of all that. I know I've known Carol for decades. Oh. I really wonder whether she and he ever had that conversation. All right. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Just telling you that's an inside scoop. Carol and I go way, way back, and she will not have a current conversation about any of this on my show. Why not? <laughs> Sounds like she doesn't want to be challenged on that story. But a lot of people are talking about how the things we discussed at the beginning of the show are seeding the ground for exactly that narrative. Let me go back to Von Braun. Okay. You know who Von Braun is. Sure, if yes. You, if anybody doesn't, Von Braun was a Nazi rocket engineer who basically pioneered the German rocket technologies prior to World War II. Hitler reached out through his minions and basically conscripted him and said, you work for the army, you work for us, and you're going to develop super weapons so we can take over the world. Von Braun really wanted to do spaceflight, but he had to make this horrible deal with the devil, which he did. And that's a whole other long program. During the end of the war, during the 1940s, around 45, Werner Von Braun, based on the technology that he developed in terms of spaceflight you know, being able to launch satellites, envisioning space stations, all of that. He wrote a novel, a fictional novel. Were you aware of that? Vaguely. Remind us what it was about. It's about a group of engineers. It's basically the story of his life and his German rocket scientist companions, except it extrapolates to the future when, with the aegis of the U.S. government, they get the funding to actually take a fleet of rocket ships 
to Mars and set up a colony. Like projecting, you know, like like he did in the Collier series and he did in the books that came out in the 1950s, illustrated by Chesley Bonstell. And like he did with Disney. Remember the work he did with Disney, Walt Disney? Yes. Where he laid out trips to the moon for men and women and trips to Mars, the Mars expedition with those stunning paintings by my old friend and colleague, Chesley Bonstell. Yes, again, seeding things in entertainment. Exactly, like Brookings, preparing the runway for when it goes from fiction to being real. That's what Brookings recommended. People have to be prepared. So all of this stuff has been preparation in this model. In the novel, he talks about the political structure of the colony on Mars. You know, how it will be kind of like a bicameral legislature. There'll be an executive, basically patterning it after the U.S. government, right? Mm -hmm. What did he call the chief executive in the novel? Not a president, okay? What did he call him instead? I don't know. The Elon. <laughs> you think any of this is accidental? No. no. No, no, I don't. And you heard it here first on Greg's show, everybody. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So just before I let you go, in the updated version of Dark Mission, you and Mike Barra both say that Dark Mission 2 is going to be coming out soon. What happened there? Well, uh, we kind of drifted apart. Mike's not the right guy to do this with. I'm going to do this by myself. Ooh, and okay. we know so much more now than we knew then. That's why I've kind of held off. I mean, again, the South Korean breakthrough is stunning because it allows me to democratize this to anybody listening that wants to do a little homework and actually pay attention and do it correctly. Okay, and if they want to help you in that, we're talking to a bunch of people right now. If you want to democratize this, what can what can they do to maybe help out? Start by coming to the other side of midnight, listening and participating, become a member because we need the funding, we need the subscriptions to keep this research going. And then contact me through the contact uh, info on the left-hand side of the computer screen and I will ascertain your level of expertise. If you're a pro, photographer, whatever, It'll be pretty trivial. If you're not, you can learn. This is not complicated. Everybody's taking selfies. The same technology can blow the doors off on what they've been hiding on the moon. I love it. Yes, Club 19.5 is waiting for you, people. Yep. Get involved. And that's not an accident. 19.5 is the key number in the hyperdimensional physics. Well, yes. Sirius was hovering over the Apollo 11 landing site at precisely 19.5 degrees over the lunar horizon. You got it. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, man, well, this has just been a lot of fun. A real dream come true for me. You're a legend. It's an honor to have some of your time. Give them the links one more time. You got the other side of midnight.com and also yep. enterprisemissions.com. Enterprise missions with an S because someone stole Enterprise mission. Mm. We had some opposition when Robin died and they snuck in there. So it's, it actually is more truthful because it's more than one mission. So it's the enterprise missions, plural.com. Awesome. I love it. People follow up and definitely send me some of those images and let's get that bet on the table, but keep doing what you do and take care. <laughs> I have to think of something suitable, something, <laughs> something uniquely appropriate. I like it. I'm ready. Okay.
All right. Have a good one, man. Thank you so much. Say hi to Ron and Clyde. I will. Enjoy your evening. You too. I had Warp Factor 1. <laughs> Copy. And another one bites the dust. Super happy today to say that I've added one more classic conspiracy legend to my mantle of folks I really did come of age listening to. And it's surreal to have built a platform that actually offers them something in 2023. It did take me a good while to sort of get a rhythm going with Richard. He's an old school guy. He comes with things that he wants to get to. But I also had some specific themes that I wanted to fold in because it's such a unique opportunity for me as well. So it took almost the whole first hour to really dial in what I thought was a good back and forth. But I hear him taking calls and getting into debates on the other side of midnight all the time, so he's got a thick skin, and he's confident in his positions, and I just enjoy that vibe. And we had a little bit of debate in there. I know Richard is super confident in the Apollo missions and their credibility. He's not going to budge on that. But I thought coming from the ritual perspective and giving a quick list of reasons I think they were staged and asking about the possibility that it was theater for the mind, was the right way to ask, but I definitely didn't just want this to devolve into a moon landing debate because that's not a good use of the time that I had with him. If we're not going to mainly meet people where they are to give their perspective, then I probably shouldn't be getting them on. That's sort of my attitude about it. And it's bad form to highlight my differences of opinion in wrap-ups when the guest isn't here, so... I just want to appreciate Richard for who he is and what he brings to the table. And as my editor said, it was fun to hear someone actually defending the Apollo missions for once. Plus, I do think Richard is right when he says that going through the field of ufology just led him to think it all smells fishy. Too much misdirection, disinformation, psyops, and less than genuine folks muddying up those waters. And I've always been intrigued by structures on the moon and Mars, old ruins they don't want us to know about. Also, I got to give him props for being a man of his word because it's really common in these interviews for a guest to say, oh, I'm going to send you that when we're done. And they almost never do. Well, Richard actually did send me the stuff from the South Koreans, and I used the main side-by-side -side image as the cover art for this episode. Because of the formatting, it might be a little small, but you have to admit it's pretty strange. You can also see it in the show notes. For the people who think all space agency images are CGI, what would be the point of painting this weird ring around the moon? In this case, I think it's more likely that Richard is right and NASA has been trying to present a certain perspective of what's out there. And now, from someone else, we're seeing added detail that doesn't really fit that model at all, and likely speaks to a radically different and more advanced interplanetary past. I'm into it. But my favorite thing about Richard has always been that I heard him deconstructing the names, times, and dates of NASA missions from a symbolic and ritualistic perspective first. Even going so far as to say that certain important celestial bodies were at very specific symbolic angles on the horizon when Buzz Aldrin apparently did do this Masonic ritual during his moon mission. 
again, I don't know what literally happened and what has been a construct, but when you really get into consciousness and the impact of theaters of the mind, the importance of was it or wasn't it does start to break down. But we don't have to solve everything. Sometimes we can just have a little fun. But those ritualistic elements are definitely things he put in my head from old Coast to Coast AM shows. And then people like Chris Knowles have obviously completely blown the top off. But Richard deserves a lot of credit there. And it is the stuff I wanted to pepper in the most. But it just wasn't top of mind for him, and that's fine. You know how I get. I really do try to structure these interviews, and I'm watching the time, and I'm like, well, we're 30 minutes in. We're 40 minutes in. I want to hit this point and this point, and we're not going to get there if I don't jump in. (laughs) And sometimes it just goes how it goes. It was a lot of fun. It's just bittersweet that the Plus Show is paywalled. Obviously, it's how we do things, and it's how I get paid, but I just thought it was a really enjoyable and entertaining second half, and I just wish more people were going to hear it, because we did find a fun back-and-forth rhythm, and I do hope we can do it again. Somewhere in there, halfway through, I realized my really long way of asking questions and setting things up wasn't going to work. But since we're talking about it, the Plus Show topics were... Getting into that question of how Richard handles Apollo hoax criticisms. We talked about why the astronauts were brainwashed and mind-controlled, which Richard is pretty confident in. We talked about the hunt for ancient extraterrestrial libraries to reconstruct the human story. Probably my favorite aspect of the whole show. It also fed into ruins in the Antarctic. Another great thing to hear him talk about, we got into why Edgar Mitchell was so obsessed with consciousness, we decoded some other recent NASA activity, Osiris Rex and Bennu, we talked about that legendary face on Mars, and the Jack Kirby comic that came out years earlier, I mean, he broke that down really well, and we also talked about Richard's work with John Brandenburg and his thoughts on the Martian nukes hypothesis. So when I got in there and fired off faster questions, we covered a lot more diverse ground. Sign up for Plus if you're intrigued at all. Remember, you can start with a seven-day free trial and download all the great shows I've done lately, Schwab, Analog, Richard, and then just cancel. (laughs) I don't want you to do that exactly, but I am doing fine, and I would like more people to hear these shows in full when it comes down to it. And I do hope some of you let Richard know that this was appreciated so we can do it again. Tune in to The Other Side of Midnight. He takes calls. Ask him about things that were said here today. I know he's game for it. On a personal level, I pretty much rolled in from Mount Shasta, crammed for this interview, reread Dark Mission, scrambled to get the Jeff Harmon show out to you, and then I got on a plane to Florida. So now I'm back and scrambling to get this out to you before it's largely irrelevant. And it actually does seem like when it comes to the main thing we talked about in the beginning, they never really did give us a good answer about these things they shot down. I think the official story is just that they never found them and then they stopped looking. Apparently, one was a ham radio operator balloon, according to No Agenda, and they had a listener who is in the industry and said it was just the fine-tuning and calibration of military radar that had them picking up more objects. 
but I question that. It doesn't really make a lot of sense because these kind of balloons and ham radio stuff, these things have been around a lot longer than me even. It's not new tech, so when we have this sudden dust up, it just seems like it's a little deeper of a story in my opinion, but still probably not aliens. And largely used as a distraction away from so many other things like this crazy Ohio disaster. I just heard they're taking tens of thousands of contaminated gallons of water and much of the contaminated soil and they're shipping it to towns in Texas and Michigan because when your disaster didn't do enough damage, just spread it all around, I suppose. Another thing is that I do hope we get that bet established. He brought up the prospect of a bet when we were talking about Musk taking nine people to the moon and revealing all. But the problem is that it is a hard bet to make because if they do carry out that mission, I'm probably going to say that it looked like it was stagecraft and Richard is going to say, see, they did it just like I said they would. And we would probably be at an impasse. But betting is deep in my veins. I do take it seriously and I am a man of my word. I would never try to weasel out of it, but I would be looking at that kind of stuff very critically. And at the end of the day, I just think we wouldn't agree, but I got all jazzed up when he brought the idea of a bet into play. I certainly agree with Richard when he says things like nothing in this game is linear. It's levels upon levels upon levels. And when we did get into the Antarctica stuff in the Plus show, it is a valid question to ask, well, why even send Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to Antarctica to look at something, as we know they did? If you look it up, you can find that apparently both of them went down there. Buzz Aldrin had to be medically airlifted out. He's an old man. But if during the Apollo missions, all you really did is simulate something and spin these guys around in a chamber to make them feel like they did something special, then it doesn't seem like their opinions on anything would really be all that important. But if the Apollo missions were genuine and they really saw something crazy up there, sending them down to Antarctica does make you think they were being asked, hey, does this thing here look like the stuff you saw up there? <laughs> and that's interesting. I also hope you're ready for the big revealing at the 2024 eclipse. And if you really look at the South Korean moon mission photo, it certainly is a curious thing that jives well with what Richard has been saying for over two decades. Maybe we are in the end game, as he put it. In higher side news, the auction is still going on, probably going to go longer than expected because listing them and then getting them in the mail in a timely manner has not been the smoothest process, but I'm done traveling now. I got nothing to do but stuff envelopes and pack. I might even just stop after a few more rounds and do this again in a couple of years. Because from the dashboard I have, it looks like I got exactly 50 active auctions and 27 have bids, so plenty of available ones, and maybe I'm doing too many at once, because it is a lot to scroll through. Although the process has certainly been helpful, I mean, it's completely paid for the pod rental and transfer, so I'm not complaining. But also, some of these I'm nostalgic for, and I want to keep for myself, to be honest. Anyway, let's look at the meetup calendar as well. It looks like March 4th, we got one in Sedona, Arizona. March 10th, Scottsville, New York. March 11th, Spooner, Wisconsin, also March 11th. 
Sanichton, <laughs> British Columbia, Canada. It's a meetup on Vancouver Island at Island View Beach. Maybe I just should have said that. A lot easier to pronounce. Then on March 18th, a Harrisburg, Oregon meetup. March 22nd, the Arroyo Seco meetup. And March 23rd, the Cerro de la Oya, New Mexico meetup. That is actually an antler hunt camp out on Pot Mountain. So fun stuff. People are getting pretty creative with the calendar. I like it. And speaking of the calendar, it was Gordon who pointed out that hosts were not getting email notifications when a person would RSVP. And that's probably not the best system. So we fixed that. It was set so that the page for each event would have a counter, but it's better that a host gets emails. We want them to get a sense of how many people are coming. So I think that makes the experience of putting an event on the calendar a little better. But I love it. Use it and have some fun. No risk, all reward. And we will certainly have a couple when I get down to Florida. But that's pretty much all she wrote. Big thanks again to Richard. Check out the added images in the show notes. Go over to Other Side of Midnight or Enterprise Missions for more. Tell them you want to hear them on THC again, and maybe this can turn into a fun, mutually beneficial series of shows rather than a one-off. We shall see if it's in the stars, but thanks to you for listening and taking part in a personal milestone for me. It's been really a great month of shows, despite how crazy busy I've been. I think February has been one of the best months in a while, but hey, I've done my part. Your move, ritual mission planners, NASA deceivers, and moon ruins concealers. Your fucking from space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard, silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite, gotta be Set me straight. I encourage you to go when you see the saucers glow. One by one, we'll all end up awake. Enlightening the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now we're not asleep. Don't obey the elite. Got a beam to the head. Now we start to wonder. No, we're not the sheep that they. starts to die cabals hate it when we make it so they'll break it and next round they'll erase
Monday.